0: Church, we are here, and I'm excited to uh, kind of jump on the back of the victory that, that Greg and Steph lead us in, this, this concept that there is something greater uh, that we're all after. There's something greater that we're chasing. It's a greater base note. It's something. <laughs> what we've been doing for the last few weeks, what we're going to continue to do is uh, this He Would Love First series. Um, and so if you came in, this your first week, you saw we have a basket full of Uh, These bracelets I've got mine on, it's white, it's still white. Someone warned me that they may not stay white because, you know, it's white, but it's so far so good. I bleach it every day just to prove that person wrong. And um, you can pick one of those up, be a part of this with us. The, The idea behind this whole series is that it would be both a reminder to you as we go through what this actually means and a challenge to you to have something on you that might invite a conversation with someone else. And so uh, a couple weeks ago, we deconstructed the world's uh, kind of modern definition of love. We deconstructed love. And then last week, we came back and redefined love. Um, And when you say, what is he would love first, H-W-L, he would love first. We're we're spending the whole uh, seven weeks we're going to be in this series on that L, on that love. And so today, we dig into the next level of what love means. And we're going to do it in one of the most familiar passages that the Bible has on love. And so if you've ever been to a wedding... Uh, you've probably heard, love is patient, love is kind. And so we're actually just gonna read into that and then we're gonna go from there and see what uh, the Bible tells us. So 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Love always protects, always trusts, But when I became a man, I put, on the way, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. This is like oxygen for uh, weary souls to just tell me more about love. Tell me more about how good it is. Tell me more. We're going to get to the second half of that. That passage in weeks to come. For today, we kind of want to focus on the love is patient, love is kind. And when most people hear that, uh, we, hear, we hear something we love. We hear lists. We love lists as people. Don't you know this? The internet, I did an informal study this week. The internet is based on 93% of the internet is just lists, just begging you to click them. You know, you won't believe number three. You know these lists. And so you're looking around the internet, and you just can't help yourself when it says top five running backs of all time, and you're like, oh, I'm not, they don't even know. Jim Brown, Walter Payton, Barry Sante. You know, you just start going, all right, what about the top eight ways to be a better parent this year? Or what about the top four ways to rust-proof your car? In the-? You know, they're just everywhere, list after list after list after list. And I, I can't help but see, uh, Everywhere. And what's the problem is once you start seeing lists on the internet, you never stop seeing that everything is a list on the internet. I don't know if you know this, but the top six new ways to wear jeans this year, like the new fashion, and it's like bootleg mom cut inside out, and it's like it's a whole new thing and you have to do it, and then you go like, how do I become a better boss, spouse, hamster, you can, if you want it, it's out there. Lists, we love them and the reason they keep showing up on your internet browser is because you click on them and it's your fault and mine. Why do I care? Most of us look at this passage and we see a list. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is this. It isn't that. Most of us see something like this. Because I was on the internet and I said, I wonder if people made a list out of this. And sure enough, if you Google this passage and list, you get about a thousand slides that look like this. It nicely breaks into two little sections. You won't believe number three. And the reality is, though, it's perfect for a blog post, but I don't see a blog post when I see this passage of Scripture. What I see is a little different. I... I don't think of a blog post. I don't think of lists. I think of the Unabomber. The Unabomber is what I think of. There he is. You you thought you were going to get through a whole sermon series on love without talking about the Unabomber. You thought wrong. If you're of a certain vintage, you remember the Unabomber. The Unabomber was omnipresent for the totality of my childhood, Dan Rather and Tom Brokaw and Connie Chung and whoever else was on the nightly news, it seems like once a week we have a new break in the Unabomber case. If you don't know who the Unabomber is, um, you're getting a, a good look at him right now. This is the best picture we had for about 30 years. No, um, he, Ted Kaczynski was this genius terrorist who over 18 years mailed, used the post office, remember the under 30, post office is this thing where you put, affixed stamps to letters and they... And so it's like malware, but back in the old days. And what he would do is he would mail bombs to people, uh, professors, intellectuals. It was like terrifying because every time anybody of that ilk opened uh, a mailbox and there was a brown paper package in there, you'd just be like, oh man, here we go. And he killed multiple people and no one could ever figure out who he was, where he was from. He was this mystery. And this is the only picture we had. There was a woman in Utah who saw a man looking like this deliver a package that eventually blew up. And so this was all we had. We had this sketch. Notice it's a sketch, though. I mean, it's a little creepy, but it's a sketch. It isn't, you know, hoodie, aviators, creepy mustache. That wasn't what, they didn't put that on the news. They put a sketch of him. Like, this is maybe what he looks like. Keep your eyes out for him. The, the irony is, I said he's a genius, uh, the Unabomber, he got to Harvard. He started his Harvard education at 16 and became the youngest professor at Cal Berkeley ever, And so he's sort of a genius, and I have to think that the second this sketch came out, he probably threw away the hood in the aviators, but they'd be like, if you see this man, and he's in the back going, gosh, guys, what's my point? We had a sense for what he looked like. We had a sense for who he was. We collectively as a country felt like we kind of knew who he was, and yet we couldn't find him because there was a sketch, there was a portrait, and it gave us a sense of the Unabomber. So I want to offer that uh, 1 Corinthians 13 is at its core a portrait. I don't think it's a list. I don't think it's love is kind, love is patient, love is this. I think it's a portrait. I think the words actually create a picture for us. I think the words that we read there create a sense for us. And if we look at it just right, we don't get a list of things to check off and a checklist of things to do in order to be more loving. What we get is we get a portrait of who love is. Because if, if Jesus is God in the flesh and God is love, then Love is becomes a description of Jesus. And if we see this passage as a description of Jesus, it could change everything about the way that we approach the world around us. So I would say the biblical description of love does not create a list, but a portrait. We like lists because they're practical. I can read them, I can check them. We check them off one by one. This being a portrait doesn't make it less practical for us, it actually makes it more practical. In 1 John last year, we read that God is love. He who claims he he follows Jesus must walk as he walked, is what we were told. He who claims he follows Jesus has to walk as he walked. And so how does Jesus walk becomes the question we have to ask each other. How, How would I walk through 2022 in the way that Jesus walked through 32? Because they're different. How do I do what Jesus did? How do I live like Jesus lived? How do I love like he loved? And so what 1 Corinthians 13 does is it begins to offer us a sketch of that heart, a sketch of that life, a sketch of that. And we get we start to have a sense for what it might look like to love like he loved. Not aviators in a hoodie, but patience and endurance and kindness. And we start to get a sense for what my life would need to look like in order to look like love. So In order to take a closer look at the portrait we've been given, we first have to ask who it was given to. And and years ago, Tim Keller preached uh, on this passage, and I'm just completely stealing this portion because he did such a good job explaining the people of Corinth. And so um, if you think this was smart, you just send him a nice letter. The people of Corinth, um, the Corinthians, were maybe the most like us people of the entire New Testament. So when you read the New Testament, you know everything is written to someone, You know, John is writing to a certain audience, Matthew's writing to a certain audience, Luke is writing to a certain audience, and then Paul is writing these letters to the church at Ephesus and the church at Corinth and the Romans. He's writing to certain people, a certain people group, and so sometimes we have to ask what the context is, and sometimes we go, well, we aren't quite like them in this way, so how do we approach that, and how do we interpret it? Corinthians is is actually brilliant for us because we are the most Corinthian people there have ever been. I think we might be more Corinthian than the Corinthians. I'll explain it this way. From Keller. He says, Cor- uh, Corinth was destroyed in 146 BC. So, Jesus, if Jesus is around zero, okay, 146 before Jesus, Corinth is destroyed. It's leveled, it's emptied out, there's no one there. Julius Caesar in 44 BC, about 100 years later, he says, You know what? We have infrastructure. I'm going to build an outpost there, like an army outpost. I'm going to build kind of a town. And he, he starts putting resources there. And before long, Corinth becomes this mega city for the ancient world. 50,000 people live in Corinth then, which is a mega city in the ancient world. Now, what it doesn't have because of that hundred year gap that there wasn't anybody there, Corinth lost all of its history, all of its culture. Imagine if you just scraped the land for a hundred years and there wasn't some generational culture, there wasn't history, there wasn't tradition, none of those things existed. So when, when Caesar comes and he puts a new town in, it lacks all of those things, which means people didn't go there because they liked the food or they liked the culture. Or they didn't, people didn't go there for anything but to succeed. It became this new mega city where people just went to get ahead. People went to get the next level up. Grew into this diverse place that people went to make it big at any cost. The Romans, seeing what happened in Corinth in the Wild West dog-eat-dog everybody wants to get ahead kind of place, the Romans actually coined a term that we still have today. You can look it up in any dictionary you want. It's to Corinthianize. It's a verb. You Corinthianize something. And what does that mean? It it really means to sort of like um, corrupt it. To Corinthianize is to corrupt something. Corinthianize, the Corinthianization of something means it's fallen into moral depravity. it's, It's fallen into deep promiscuity. And it's a word that still gets used. You'll still see it on occasion. Oh, this place really got Corinthianized. And it's, it's a word describing just the total decay of any moral foundation. And it's just a place where success and sex and all these things become the highest achievement. As if that wasn't enough, on the highest peak in Corinth, there was a temple to Aphrodite. That's the word where we get aphrodisiac, so you can draw some lines there. Each night, a thousand prostitutes would come down from the temple to ply their wares in the city. So their craft was, was on display every single night. And this is, there's a whole uh, old thing about uh, cities. The tallest building, and this was true before the age of skyscrapers for the most part, but the tallest building in any city will tell you what it's about. The tallest building in any city tells you what it's about. And so if the tallest building is a cathedral, well, that tells you maybe that's what this city cares about. If the tallest building is an office building, it's a tower of commerce. The, the tallest point, the highest point, the, the beacon on the hill in the city of Corinth was the temple of Aphrodite. And every night, a thousand prostitutes come down. This does not sound like a, a place that is just dripping in gospel. Keller called it the most, quote, sex obsessed and success oriented culture of the ancient world. Paul writes a letter to those people, and he says, Let me tell you about true love. Does that seem off? Knowing what you know about them, does that seem like the kind of thing that's going to really like win him a big audience? It's a radical thing to do. But it's not unlike our culture. You do you, live your truth, treat yourself. No one's going to put you first but you, man. You do your thing. We have a thousand causes. Every person, you, every single person in here has a thousand causes we can all care about. There's a thousand things out there for each of us. We see it in personal lives. We see it in followers of Christ. We see it in our brothers and sisters. We see it in other churches. Everybody's got a cause. Everybody has a thing. Everybody has this main thing we care about more than anybody else. Look at us. We can be identified by being this people or that group or this church or whatever. And Paul looks at it. Paul goes, but what about the main thing? What about the main thing, though? Guys, can I tell you about true love? And similarly, he gets ignored. Ah, that, that's not compelling anymore. You have to have a cause. You have to be about something. You have to be tagged to something. For a couple of years, we've been teaching really—I uh, have loved it. I don't know about you. We have been teaching uh, boring truth. We spent 40 weeks on Jesus. Like, come on. Jesus? What about the causes? The last year was full of causes. Last year was so many things were happening. The world was turning over upside down, and we just kept talking about Jesus? And yet, that's what Paul's doing. That's what Scripture points back to. He goes, hey, the way to solve the the problems of the world, the way to to work through the challenges around us, the the way it's not adopting a new cause. It's coming back to the root of, of the source of love. It's coming back to Jesus. So we are Corinthianized. We are a brash, in a hurry, consumptive type of people. We are preference-protecting, sex-obsessed sort of people. And Paul looks at you and me and he says, yeah, but let me tell you about what what life's really about. That person gets dismissed in our culture. The person who comes in quietly and goes, yeah, but can I talk to you about true love? Do we elect people to talk like that? Um, Can I have a rational conversation with you briefly over here on the side? So I don't want anybody to hear this. Let's just talk this out. No, we elect, nationally at least, we elect people that can yell the loudest, have the best insults. We, we, we want electable people, and electable people get the base fired up, electable people. And so we're all about who is the most electable person. We race to extremes. We don't want a loving leader. We don't demand that of our leaders. Are they loving, though? Do you think this governor, president, senator, pick your president, yeah, I don't care. Are they kind lo- are they? Kind? Are they patient? Do you think that they keep a record of wrongs? Like, we don't ask those questions. We go, I hope they keep a record of wrongs, and I hope they really get them at the debate. Arrogant or rude, rejoicing in truth and not in wrongdoing. What we want of our leaders in our Corinthian culture is that they would get the best results. Success. We want success. Are they morally reprehensible? Or are they mean-spirited? Are they sleeping around? Or are they spewing venom? Eh. Can they get our agenda through? Because we're Corinthians. Our culture is a Corinthian culture. We just want success. We want to win at all costs. It's not just political. Yes, we want someone who can power through political hurdles and get the agenda through. We also want that for our 401k. We want a CEO who at all costs will drive profits so that I can retire better. Sweatshops, I don't want to hear about that. My phone was made where? By who? She was how old? She makes what? But have you gotten the new update? It's a really cool app that you can now do the, I I don't want to know. I just want profits. I want to consume and I want profits. I don't know if you know this, the NFL playoffs started. Somebody told me about this. What do we want our sports people to be? Our our coaches and players, we want them to be ruthless. Winners. We don't want to root for a bunch of nice losers. That's what the Chicago Cubs for a century. They're lovable losers. And they were a joke. Everybody in the country knew they were lovable losers. Oh, Cubs a bunch of jokes. What do we want? We want someone who's ruthless, who's going to just kill the enemy and then stomp on their grave. Why? So we can join in the glory. We looked the other way at the abuses of Bobby Knight for years. Bobby Knight was the chair-throwing coach at Indiana. And he was obviously abusive. He was obviously, like, off his rocker, insanely abusive. Well, their teams do win, though. In in Indiana, being a basketball-assessed state, they went, well... I can't argue with the results, that's what you say, you can uh, the ends justify the means here, guys, we won. You guys remember Ray Lewis, linebacker Ray Lewis, Ray Lewis was indicted for murder, had a plea deal, lesser charges, like eight months later, won the Super Bowl MVP, and a couple years after that was on Dancing with the Stars, indicted for murder, Yeah, he's a real killer out there, like, uh, but is he really? Well, he might be, but I mean, We won. And then he's on Dancing with the Stars, and every 61-year-old woman in the country is like, man, he really does a good job at the tango. And we don't seem to care. Is he loving? Is he patient? Is he kind? No, he's a killer. That's okay, though. I mean, he'd plead down to something less. It's fine. So Paul says to Corinth, and I would say Paul says to us when we read these letters, Paul says that love runs counter to your culture. If you think for a second that your culture cares about this love, this capital L love, you're wrong. Love runs counter to culture. Love is impractical. It's a feature, not a bug. It's impractical. Love will not get you ahead. Love will not help you win a modern election. Love will not make you popular. Love will not go viral. Love will not gain you followers. Love will cost you money. Love will cost you power. And love will make you appear weak and foolish in our modern world. And love wins. Every single time. Love will never end. Love is a verb. It's not a list but a portrait. It's an essence and a person. Love is God and God is love. And faith and hope and love will endure and the greatest of these is love. So let me give you the the conclusion now before we get to the end. Do your words and actions maybe your social media posts and your favorite football players. Do your words and your actions, does all that make up your life invite people to draw closer to love? That's really the standard that Paul is laying out here. If love is the goal, if love is the answer, if love is the solution, if love is the heart of this life, because Jesus is love, do your words, do your actions, does your life draw people towards love? love, or does your life repel people, or even just distract people from love? To so look at the actual words in 1 Corinthians. It's a picture of love, I said. It's a picture of selflessness, I would say. The whole thing, that, that if you wanted to make it a list, I would say it's a list of self versus others, but if it's a portrait, it's just a portrait of selflessness. Kind and patient and enduring It's a portrait of others' focused humility. So love is kind and patient. It endures delay and trial and undue hardship and still gives away joy and grace because kindness and patience are selfless. They don't add to me. They add to you. When you're stuck in line, whatever the line is that you get stuck in, and these days you get stuck in a lot of lines. I don't know if you know, there's a little staffing shortage out there. I went to pick up a meal that somebody had ordered for someone in our community group and it was going to be ready at 5.15 and there was a bunch of people at, at Bob Evans and they were not happy because there was a five to 10 minute wait at 5.15 on a weeknight and they were grumbling about it in the back and then I went up and I said, hey, I'm here to pick up this, it's under this person's name and they said, okay, that was supposed to be ready at 5.15, give us like 15 minutes, we got to get some fresh biscuits and I sit down and the lady next to me goes, fresh biscuits for you too, they're not ready, they got nothing, they don't know what they're doing in here and everybody's angry at Bob Evans. <laughs> Bob never hurt anybody. You know, Bob is just out back there making good biscuits and we're all, and it's, it's this whole, where does impatience come from? Impatience comes from a sense of entitlement. I deserve what I deserve and I deserve it now. I shouldn't have to wait. Kindness. Kindness always costs you. If you want to know if you're kind, if you want to know if you're practicing kindness, if you've evidenced kindness, kindness always costs you something. It could cost you time, it can cost you energy, it can cost you money. Kindness always costs you. And it costs you for the sake of someone else. So, so you can practice selflessness or self selfishness, and you never know this is more clear than when someone asks you to help them move. Whew. It's going to cost you time and energy. Do I really want... Oh. Uh, it could be real bi- Like, even for an hour, I could come, ooh. Uh, and you, you have this inner wrestling of, like, I like these people, and I really want to love them well, but that's going to cost me. That's my Saturday. And kindness says, yeah, I'm coming. And whatever is the opposite of kindness kind of tries to find the excuse not to show up. As a contrast, Scripture says love doesn't envy or boast. So if there's this selflessness on display, It gives us then the opposite. Love doesn't envy or boast. And you're like, that's about self? What is envy? Envy is being overly upset when others are doing better than we are. That's envy. What is boasting? Boasting is being overly proud when we do well. So envy and boasting are both rooted in comparison that focuses on self, either what I don't have or what I do have. Either I'm boasting because I have more than you or I'm envious because I have less than you. So you've always heard the the old line, comparison is the thief of joy. That's true. So what does Jesus say about joy? Joy, Jesus said, is made perfect when we what? Our joy will be made complete when we love. And we define love from John 15, which is obedience rooted in commitment, evidenced by self-sacrifice. And Jesus says in that is where you'll find complete joy comparison envy boasting that will steal your joy because you're focused on the wrong thing you're focused on self and it looks like you're focused on others i'm looking at what everybody else is doing but it's really focusing on others as to compare it to self and the selflessness that is being prescribed in first corinthians 13 says stop focusing back on fine focus on others that's great but don't go back and compare it root in commitment to your love for the person and evidence and self-sacrifice Love doesn't insist on its own way, Paul says. Again, insist on its own way is about self or allow others' way to win on occasion. That might be selfless. It says love is not irritable or resentful. This is where you start wondering, how is that going to be about selfishness? Because I don't know if irritability is selfish. Guess what? I found a way. Irritability, I would argue, is actually just real-time selfishness. So why are you irritated? The mower won't start. Oh. The washing machine breaks. Oh. Is that about the mower? No, it's about me and what I have to do. I have to get fixed. Oh, okay. It's about the washing machine. Oh, I got to do this thing. It's, oh, it's the line is long. I'm irritated that the line at the Starbucks. The, why, why are all these people need coffee? I need coffee. They don't need coffee. I'm irritated. For the last almost two years, pinch yourself. It's almost been two years. The thing that irritates me more than anything on Earth, and this is a confession, I'm I'm being honest, I'm being vulnerable for you, is when a kid forgets their mask on the way to school. (sighs) Because I don't remember until we're halfway out the driveway and already taking that turn, we're and then I go, "Don't you have a mask?" Uh, I have two kids. One usually has a mask. The other one is nine years old and named Brixton. So. I don't want to out either of them though. So <laughs> So this last week, no joke. Get in the car. Out the driveway. I'm taking I'm I'm, I'm pulling out the driveway. And she I said, w- "You did get your mask, right?" Uh I put it in park. I threw it in reverse. I have a long driveway. I got into my driveway. And I went about 900 miles an hour back up the driveway, <laughs> slammed on my brakes, and I turned around with the nicest face I could come up with, and I said, why don't you take a minute and go get your mask? <laughs> and what I wanted to feel was what was coming out of my mouth, but what I know I was feeling is the 900 mile an hour reverse up the driveway, which was going, you are messing with my day. How petty! The nine-year-old forgot her mask, and if we'd have just gotten all the way to school like we do twice a week, they'd give her one there anyway. I didn't have to, but it was just, I had to make the point. I'm irritated. This is about me. You are ruining my life. And then I pull back out, and I'm like, that wasn't such a big deal. And she's like, Dad, are you okay? I was like, yeah, Dad has some selfishness he has to work on. This will be in the sermon soon. Irritability is real-time selfishness because I want that moment to be about me and my needs. People are needy. What about mine? So that's real-time selfishness. What is about resentfulness? Resentfulness is historical selfishness. Resentfulness is holding something against someone that no one can possibly change because I can resent someone's sin against me, but it won't undo it. It won't change the pain. It won't right the wrong, but I can resent it as long as I want. Resentment is selfish in that it wants to wallow in the mud of the past rather than get over self and find a path towards the future. It's about me. It's self-pity laced with anger. That's what resentfulness is. It's self-pity laced with anger. And it's, it's only about me. It's not just unloving, it's ineffective and unwise. Nelson Mandela famously said, resentment is like drinking poison and then hoping it will kill your enemies. It's not hurting them. Love is then ultimately for and about others. It doesn't cheer on wrongdoing because someone is being hurt by that, so I'm not cheering for that. It rejoices in truth, even when truth is inconvenient for the way I want to live my life. It's a belief rooted in that truth that God is working everything out for our good. Scripture says it bears and endures, means it's shouldering the cost for others. Hope is rooted in an eventual redemption that the cost for me now is nothing compared to the cost for the ultimate love. So we put eyes on the picture of love, on the portrait of grace and mercy, and we ask the question, what is love again? Really, who is love? Love is Jesus. Love is Jesus, and Jesus is love. Jesus runs counter to your culture. Jesus is impractical. Jesus will not get you ahead. Jesus will not help you win an election. Jesus will not make you powerful. Or popular. Jesus will not go viral. Jesus will not gain you followers. Jesus will cost you money. There are black boxes on the wall in the back. Jesus will cost you power. Jesus will make you appear weak and foolish at times in this culture. And Jesus wins. His kindness leads to repentance. Repentance turns us from death to life. Jesus' patience with us in our sin, his patience, is the path to our hopefulness. Jesus didn't insist on his own way. He walked the way of the Father, and then he created a brand new way for us. The way, the truth, and the life. Jesus did not rejoice with wrongdoings. Instead, he joined wrongdoers on a cross at Calvary, and he gave his life to redeem theirs. Jesus bears all things. He bore my sin and yours. He bore my guilt and my shame. He bore our punishment and our death. And he did not leave it there. Jesus' resurrection gave us redemption, new life, no more death. It's Jesus. Love is patient. Love is Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy, He does not boast. Jesus endures all things. Jesus bears all things. Jesus loves and is love and is the heart of love and is the invitation to love. And in a world desperate for love, we are looking for causes. We're looking for fights. We're looking for some place to show ourselves off. And what the scripture is saying is what you need to do is receive the fullness of Jesus and nothing less. Because everything less will not satisfy, and yet Jesus is the answer to every single issue. Jesus is the answer to your marriage, die to self and love the other. Jesus is the issue to your finances, start to live generously and see what happens. Jesus is the answer to every single place we fall, he picks us up. Jesus is love, and love endures. Jesus is love, and love never ends. Jesus is love. Love always wins. Hi again. Just a reminder to let us know that you're listening by heading over to bgcovenant.org connect. If you're ready to be known, we'd love to know you. And we hope you'll join us soon, every Sunday, in person or online. Thanks for listening.